Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Well, good evening to the faithful remnant who hitched the dogs to the wagon and headed into the church. Uh, Well, we have plenty of food. We have communion bread the last three days, so if we get locked in here... We're going to eat some of the best pie crusts in the state of Missouri, right? Let's stand up. Introduce yourselves. If you already know them, just greet them, and we'll warm this place up with handshakes. Well, it is good to see you tonight in a warm, dry place. We're going to word a prayer, and then we're going to attack lesson four tonight. So please join me in prayer. God, I thank you for a safe journey. I thank you that the uh, forecast that was uh, given to us last night didn't happen here. I just pray that those that will be on their way here, and and even those that will return later after our programming is over, well, you'll continue to provide safety. Uh, We can return home, get good night's rest, and... uh, Awaken tomorrow to take the opportunities that you've given us then. Uh, I pray tonight as we continue to look at what your word says and to, I pray, be inspired by its content and its intent uh, that you will bring about in each of us a better understanding of who you are. We study to know you, and uh, we're grateful that that's possible, that that you are a God who reveals yourself. And uh, I pray that you'll open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and uh, remove all the distractions, even this evening. Uh, that uh, even if we're tired or it's been a poor day or uh, we have just a bunch of reasons uh, to just fade away, I pray for this next hour or so together that you will inspire our minds and our hearts and help us to know you more. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, when we last left Jesus, he was being tempted in the wilderness. And we've been talking about the Gospels, and tonight we'll complete that uh, understanding of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I want to begin by talking to you about the disciples. And here's where you begin to panic. Because I want to talk to you about the 12 disciples and some of the dynamics that took place with this concept of discipleship and what it means. What I want you to do is you'll notice that there are 12 blanks on your sheet. I want you to take the next 60 seconds and write down the name of as many disciples as you can come up with. And if you can't come up with all of them, Start with the seven dwarfs, and we'll see if we can't fill in 12 lines, all right? See if you know the names of the 12 disciples.
All right, let's see how we did. Easy ones to remember. Who are the three that are noted to have spent the most time with Jesus, at least recorded by name? Peter, James, and John, okay? So you can, if you have those three down, give yourself those proper points. Who's Peter's brother? Andrew. There's the fourth disciple. Andrew's a, an incredible character in scripture. Uh, Andrew really is, is kind of the, he's really the gatekeeper to all the disciples. Uh, Andrew was the one who introduced Jesus to Peter, James, and John. Um, and there, it just, he's the one. When the little boy, Jesus said, what do we have to feed the crowd? Who found the little boy with the sack lunch? Andrew. Probably the most underappreciated uh, of all the disciples. So we have Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Now, Peter's original name was Simon. What's interesting is that you have multiple names, or excuse me, you have uh, duplicated names in the disciples. There are two James. There's James, the brother of John, and there's James the lesser. Okay, so we have two James. We have two Simons. We have Simon Peter, and then we have Simon. What's interesting about Simon? There's sometimes a name attached to him. Simon the Zealot. What's a zealot? Uh, he, would, he would have been a mini-terrorist. His job was to cause insurrection, to bring pain on people that stood up against the Jewish people. This was this mercenary group that went out and made people pay, kind of like the Jewish mafia. All right? And then we have um, James the Lesser, we have Simon, and then we have, I guess those are our, our duplicates. So we have a man named, begins with a T. Okay, pardon? Thaddeus and Thomas, we have two of them. And then we have three remaining. We have Bartholomew, Philip, and you will poke yourself in the eye with a pencil if you didn't have this one, Judas. Which is kind of funny. Do you know that there's been some testing done that when they ask people who know the names of the disciples to write down who's Always the one listed last. Well, always, that's an overstatement. Most commonly, people, even when they know from the beginning, even if they can't name all of them, people will go down to the 12th slot and put Judas down there. Now, what's interesting about Judas, his story is, uh, well, there's a lot of questions I could ask. You know, I was teasing you last week about, uh, you know, did Jesus ever get spanked? Uh, you know, was he ever borderline disrespectful? Did he ever wake up with crabby attitude and just was grumpy uh, but you'll notice that whenever John mentions Judas okay, I want to show you the difference Matthew doesn't do this but John does something distinct whenever he mentions the name Judas in his gospel do you know what that is he refers to him as the one who betrayed Jesus every single time without exception he can't say the name of Judas without documenting, that's the guy who betrayed him. Now, why would that be distinct in the Gospel of John? Let's see if we have any retention from some of the comments from last week. Why would he make pains to do that when Matthew, Mark, and Luke did not? What's it, what could be a good theory? I'm sorry, Ron? 
Okay, yeah, yeah, right. So he identifies himself outside of his name. But what do we know about the context of John versus Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that would lead us to believe? Pardon? Uh, that, was he big on details? That was probably more to Luke and to Matthew. Think of a calendar. John was written roughly when? 80 to 90. The other Gospels were written probably in what period of time? 50s, early 60s. There's a 20 to 25 year gap between the two of them. Okay. Do you think there are some people named Judas in the church that would like to be known that they're not that one? I think it might be feasible that he's trying to protect the innocents by documenting this would be the guy that set this all up. I told you also that about two-thirds of the Gospel of John is focused on what period of time? The last two to th two weeks or so of Jesus' life leading up to the resurrection. So if John is spending all of his time talking about the last two weeks of Jesus' life, Judas is a huge character. Why doesn't Matthew, Mark, and Luke give much attention to Judas? Because he's not a big character in the majority of Matthew's writings or Mark's, and Mark's just so quick. And then Luke is writing about the church, so Luke doesn't mention Judas nearly as much. So, uh, I remember being, growing up in a kid, I thought you had to know the 12 disciples to get into heaven. I found out later that was just a good junior church technique. Uh, and I, in, down the line, though, the, these characters are interesting, and you can do some uh, biography research on some of them and find out what history has recorded. Now, this is what we talked about when we talked about what makes up the 66 books of your Bible. But there is church history that records what happened to most every one of them, where they went, where, where when the church was dispersed in the book of Acts, where did Thomas go? Where did Bartholomew go? Where did Thaddeus go? A uh, little pop quiz. Who was the first disciple to die? Trick question. Judas. Okay. Which was the, which was the ones that we like, of the remaining 11 that we like, who was the first to die? James. How did James die? This is not James the lesser. This is James the brother of John, one of the th sons of thunder. Do we know how he died? Yeah, he was, he was killed. He was martyred. Uh, by the government. He's the first disciple to pay that price. And yet we know that every one of them did. And history records, some, some went to India, some are found in, in uh, what we now would call Turkey, some uh, in China, that the church spread. And we think sometimes persecution on the church is a bad thing. That's how God spreads it. Remember when you were, when you were a little kid and you saw one of the, I, I, were they white dandelions? What are those little things with the little parachute guys on them? Dandelion? Remember when you were a little kid? When you picked one of those, what's the first thing you did? Remember when you got your first yard and it was your house and your kid picked up one of those? What did you say to them? Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> all you did was disseminate all of those weeds all over the yard. And when Satan thought by attacking the church he could stop it, actually all he did was just blow those little guys all over the world. Uh, so it's kind of funny what, when Joseph says that what Satan meant for evil, God used for good. Even persecution does that even today. Okay, so those are the disciples. Now I want to remind you from week one of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you can see that there in your notes. Uh, there's a couple lines in there I just want to highlight for us today. The Pharisees believed that both the scriptures and the rabbis' interpretations of scripture were equally binding. In our culture today, we might look at that and scoff. Well, how dare we? I want you to understand that's as prevalent in today's theology. Church history has become the equal to scripture. Church interpretation. 
I won't, out of respect, but I can name several large movements of Christianity in the United States where today's apostolic voice is given equal understanding to Scripture. You have to be really, really careful. I don't think God needed any man to interpret what he meant. I don't. So, so be cautious. The Pharisees thought a rabbi's interpretation of the Scripture. So what the Pharisees did is, uh, I'm just going to make this up, okay? If God's law says you're not to touch this table, this table's holy, set apart for God. Well, obviously it's holy because it has a cub cup on it. Okay, so it's been made holy by the presence of this. And so you can't touch it. The Pharisees would say, okay, we understand you can't touch it. But what we're going to do is create a rule that says you can't come within two feet of it. Three. After a shower. After you shave. Your teeth have to be brushed. Five. Because you could fall on your way to death and your head hit that at three feet. So we're going to put you back seven feet. So if the worst thing that happened to you, you would never fall and touch the table. What became the law then? Let's start over. What is the law? Don't touch the table. What became the new law which made it hard for anybody to understand? Seven feet, teeth brushed, shaved and showered. That's what the Pharisees did to everything God wanted. Jesus came in and said, no, no. He just said, don't touch the table. But our teacher, and he said, yeah, yeah, your teachers are teaching you stuff that they won't even do themselves. Remember that line? You put burdens on men's backs that you yourselves won't carry. It's exactly what he was doing. They would have separate plates for this and separate utensils for this, all trying to make sure that they didn't come in. In fact, my, my research says that there were 613 additions to the law of God that the Pharisees put on the Jewish people. That's why nobody understood what it was. They didn't even know God because they were spending all the time going, oh, I use my left hand. That's what the Pharisees brought. Now the Sadducees. The unique thing about Sadducees I want you to note here is the Sadducees only believed in the first five books of what you would call your Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's all they held to. So when we say the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, that's because all they had were those books on how to behave. And uh, notice in that first line there, the Sadducees were the wealthy people who controlled the priesthood. I could make a crack about wealth controlling the American church, but I, you know, that'd be beneath me, wouldn't it? So we go from the disciples and I shared this a couple of weeks ago on a Sunday morning, and once again, not to repeat myself, but I do think it's kind of funny how what we've been talking about the last three weeks and four weeks have lined up with exactly where we're going to be tonight when we talk about miracles. But when we talk about the concept of what God is doing here and how he's bringing this all together, remember, Jesus' plan was not to do it all. Jesus' plan was to introduce what he was doing and then to take those that believed in him. God bet the bank on faith. He said, if Jesus reveals who he is and does the work that I've sent him to do and he frees people, my Holy Spirit will bring conviction on them and they will go into all the world and they will preach the good news of Jesus. That's what he bet everything on. We'd all look at that and go, but you need a backup plan. You need insurance policy. You need... And he was like, no, 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 no. We're, gonna, we're just going to do this. This is how it's going to work and it has. That's one of the reasons uh, this summer I got to travel with Christ and youth and the whole theme of last summer's conference teaching was the resurrection changes everything. And one of the things they did, and I never had to answer this question, but they, they put Jason French and I up on a stage and for three weeks we had this dialogue with each other. And one of the questions they asked me was startling. 
they, they asked me in April to be able in June to answer this question. Why do you believe that the resurrection is real? Away from the eyewitnesses who I've never met, away from all the questions, why do I believe the resurrection is real? And the only thing I could conclude, I would pray about this, I was doing reading. Finally, I said, the only reason that I believe the resurrection is real is the church. And here's why. Because we have tried to jack it up for years and we can't kill it. Politics, crusades, corruption, all that's going on to it. And do you know what happens? The church still has a pulse. It still preaches Jesus and people are still freed by it. It has to be real. Because everything a man gets his hands on that's holy becomes unholy except the church. And so these 12 men, you know, and it gives me hope as a man is Jesus was 11 for 12. Because even though those 12 men spent time with him, one of them betrayed him and decided to make cash off of him. So man's pursuit and following of Jesus will not be about perfection. It'll be about trust and faith. Those 12 men were God's plan to start the church, and it worked. Years later, the church is still exploding. It's still doing good work. It's still setting people free. As long as it's on Jesus, it has power. When it becomes about man, it becomes corrupt and falls apart. But every time this man-made church starts to try to do the work of God without God, they collapse and God just breaks out a new group. He breaks new life all the time. So, now, what led that group of people to buy in? Because Jesus wasn't successful, he wasn't popular. Isaiah said when you, when you look at there was nothing about Jesus that made you go, wow. There was nothing charismatic about his appearance or his demeanor. He was meek, which was a term that meant he was... He was there. You know, he didn't walk around with the chest hair showing and comb back dew and a look that made the women go, wow, I'd follow him anywhere. He's just a guy. Let's talk about the miracles. What by definition is a miracle? Okay, something supernatural. More than something unexpected. Something that has a power outside of normal. Okay, I think that's a fair working definition. Uh, I want to read these two paragraphs. Not that you can't read, but what's written here I think is significant. The gospel contains many accounts of miracles that Jesus performed. These miracles made it clear that Jesus was a messenger from God. As a man who had been blind from birth until Jesus gave him sight said, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. This was a common understanding. Even more significantly, the healing miracles that Jesus performed had ever uh, been done before. And the Old Testament identified them as miracles that would be done by the promised Messiah. Remember in week two, we talked about the prophecies concerning Jesus that were fulfilled. Does anybody remember? Give me a rough number. How many prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament were fulfilled? Pardon? 170-something. Let's play a little church bingo tonight. What's another number? We can do that. We're Protestants, right? We can, we can take that. All of them. Well done. Yes, there's a teacher right there. All of them. 600 plus. 600 plus. And the miracles were a part of that promise. That's significant. It's not just an occasional, he might have lucked into it, but the prophecies concerning him. All right. So... The miracles of Jesus were evidence of his authority as God's spokesman, as Messiah, and as Son of God. And this is the line I love. They did not make him God. They revealed him as God. 
okay? Historically, we know that mankind can fall in love with power and think that someone who has the ability to make it rain is a what? A God, because they made it rain. Instead of understanding that the miracles Jesus performed revealed who he was, they didn't make him who he was. Does that make sense? It's a small delineation, but it's important. Theologically, he's God if he does a miracle or not. So let's talk about some of the miracles. Some of the characteristics of his miracles, they were performed for a high purpose. They were performed for a high purpose. He didn't use them for personal conveniences. I, I, I'm going to say something, and I wish I wish I'd had more time this afternoon to, to document back on this, but I think I'm right, so I'm going to go with it. And if I stand corrected, I'll just do what I have to do most every week and apologize. But here's the point I want to make. I can't think of one miracle Jesus did for his own benefit. And even in the feeding of the 5,000, there's no record of him having eaten. I mean, if you had just a little miraculous power, have you ever had that 10.30 trip to the refrigerator for the fourth time, hoping that while you were away, something might have been in there that you missed? If you had just power, wouldn't you just like to like create the perfect ice cream or you know, just a perfect roast beef sandwich already made and ready to go? I would. I'm that weak. And if you look at the miracles that Satan asked Jesus to do in the temptation, remember all of them were geared toward making his life easier? He avoided that. But of the miracles, not one benefited him. Physically, emotionally, socially, none did. In fact, what I did find today was when I went through and reviewed the miracles, most every time he performed a miracle, he had to leave town because he had more enemies now than when he started. There's something being said there. Number two, they were not confined to a single sphere of life. There was not a single element of life that he focused on. Uh, I mentioned this Sunday morning, not to quote myself, but to, to remind you where we've been. If you read in the book of Hebrews, which is intended to show us that Jesus is greater, in the book of Hebrews, Jesus regains everything lost. This fascinates me, and so I'm going to take you a place you may not want to go, but just hang with me and give me two minutes, and if I bore you, then I'll, we'll reconnect after the commercial, right? In the book of Genesis, you'll notice that when man sinned, there's a list of things he lost control of. He lost control of the earth. He lost control of the animal world. I mean, think about it. He's in the garden, Adam and Eve are, with bears and lions and serpents and everything else. And upon sin, exiting the garden, they became the prey of certain animals. So when you take nature and animals and demons and you just start to list them, now go to the New Testament book of Hebrews and what the author of Hebrews does is it harkens back to Genesis and says everything lost in the failure in the garden has been restored by Jesus. That's the point I'm trying to make here. The miracles of Jesus showed that God is not going to scrap creation. He is going to restore it, redeem it. That's why Isaiah uses imagery like uh, the lion will lay down with the what? Yeah. The imagery is everything that's been broken is going to be made brand new and refreshed. It'll all go back together. I won't be allergic to cats. Well, now quit. Quit. Now you're meddling. So no single sphere of life. Human beings, heal them. Demons, cast them out. Nature, water stop. All of it. 
I just think one of the most beautiful scenes that I don't understand, but I like it anyway, it's very poetic, is when Jesus dies, what did the earth do? Sky went black and the earth shook. You want to talk about a holy amen. That was the earth going, you did what to our creator? That's powerful. It's a statement about who he was. And he even said, hey, if you won't praise me, what will happen? The rocks will cry out. Creation knows who I am, even if you ignore me. There's power being said in all of this. Third, they were done openly in front of spectators and witnesses. And you might want to add the word critics. Spectators, witnesses, and critics. The miracles, he didn't hide them. He didn't keep them for a select few. You know, he, he didn't say one day. In fact, the only time we, we find Jesus not being able to perform a miracle is in Mark chapter 6, where because of their lack of faith, he couldn't, he couldn't heal. And then Mark goes, except for a few, <laughs> which I love. It's like Jesus walked in, he said, you, you don't have faith in me, then I, I can't help you because I, my power responds to your faith. Uh, and then he walked out of there saying, you know, there was such little belief in who he was. So what's special in the miracle stories of the Gospels? Okay, which is kind of when I wrote that I probably should fix that now because the miracle stories are only found in the Gospels. So I didn't, it sounds like I'm segmenting out that there are other miracles that aren't related and that's just, that was a sloppiness on my part. Number one, Jesus' first miracle produced faith. What was his first miracle? Turning water into wine, which has messed up conservative Christians for generations. Because we wouldn't, drink wine. And there's a lot of debate about the alcohol content and level of fermentation, but here's the one thing by studying the original language, and I'm not promoting, please don't walk out of here misunderstanding me, but you can't practice a thing called eisegesis. Okay, eisegesis is when you read something into there that's not present. Exegesis is when you draw out what is in there. Eisegesis is when you try to fit your pet hobbies in there. Jesus' first miracle is profound. He turned water into wine at a wedding. So if you have a Jesus who has a dour expression on his face, if you have a Jesus who's no fun, all work, no play, you don't have this Jesus. He was at a party and he stayed late. And he made wine that was good enough that they knew, why'd you bring out the bad stuff first? And yet he did all of that in his holiness. He did all of that as a blessing. He did all of that in control. That's exactly the model we should live in. Not to live in slavery, but to live in freedom and allow that freedom to be for the good of all, not just ourselves. So it produced faith. He got their attention. I love Mary's role in that. You know, uh, this is dating me, and if you can relate to it, it really dates you. But it's kind of a bewitched moment, right? If you ever grew up watching the show Bewitched, you always knew she was going to perform her little act, but she never did it in the timing you want. Everybody was waiting for her to do it. She would always do it at the right second. It was that whole moment. I always picture this is kind of a scene from Bewitched. Mary's going, Jesus, come on now, Jesus. Help us. He's like, woman. So he calls him and he says, bring these. Without doing much, he turns water into wine. He walks out and he blesses. And there was a celebration. And people realized his first miracle was at a celebration in a group of people who didn't know who he was and they got to understand who he was really quick. Second thing about his miracles. His miracles showed his authority over nature. 
Okay, Sunday, from Mark chapter 4, I told you about one of those miracles. He calmed the storm. Right? Now, you can look at that list if you want, but it's not, it's not going to answer the question uh, that's coming our way. But name some of the other miracles that Jesus did over nature. There may be one, there may be eight. Pardon? Okay, let's keep it in the New Testament and the Gospels. Pardon? He walked on water? Pretty impressive. Pardon? Okay, calm storm. Killed a tree? Healed the sick, but that's not nature. That's We'll kind of come to that one. Peter needed a little uh, pocket change, pay off the income tax. What did he say to do? Go catch a fish, catches a fish. How could he control what was in the fish's mouth? Did he just snap the coin into the fish's mouth, or did he have some little kid fire a coin into the water to skip it, and some fish snagged it, and Jesus said, oh, we're going to hold that one for later. Somehow he knew that exact fish. At least on two occasions, he told Peter to drop his nets on a certain side of the boat, right? Both times, the first time is in Luke chapter 5. He says they'd fished all night. Remember, they fished at night from about 2 in the morning to about 6 in the morning because the fish would come to the surface. In the heat of the day, when the sun came out, the fish would go into the deep. They didn't have reels and rods and fish finders, so they would throw these weighted nets down, and they would hook them up on the other side of the boat, and they would draw it up, and they would have fish. Peter comes in from the night. He doesn't catch a fish. He's irritated because he has no thing to sell in the market. Jesus says, throw your nets on the right side of the boat. Peter's like, I just cleaned my nets, Lord. It's a wasted day. I just want to go home and forget this ever happened. But if you say so, he pulls it up. Later, John chapter 20, same scene happens. John records there was 153 fish. That's an interesting fact, isn't it? Remember what I told you Sunday? Sometimes there's details in the story just to document, document to you it's not a myth. They actually counted the fish. Someone once told me, and I don't know if it's true, uh, but preachers say a lot of things they read and never test. Someone once told me that there's 153 kinds of fish in the world. If that's true, that is awesome. (laughs) That they pulled up every kind of fish ever made and went, oh, it's him. Okay? So did Jesus demonstrate more than once a variable amount, a significant amount, that he, uh, he could control nature? Absolutely. Number three, Jesus' miracle showed us his power over demons. And I'm going to dance a dance I danced on Sunday without hesitation. I don't think we celebrate this enough. There are no threats the demonic world does to Jesus. He's not Superman with kryptonite. He's not a Batman who can lose his belt. We, we sometimes dummy Jesus down to the point that, you know, if he doesn't have an angel army, he can't take on Satan. When I read the book of Genesis, my boy shows up on a white horse and it's over he's got that kind of authority and power there's not one incident of Jesus coming into the presence of demons that they don't confess that they are against him and beg him for mercy that's amazing it's like the bully on the playground until your big brother shows up when your big brother's not there he's picking on all the little kids when the big brother comes up he starts crying in advance 
Now, I don't say that with, so that you and I don't fear the spiritual entities we're up against. We need to fear them because without Jesus, we're toast. But we can't equate him to us. Every time you read in your Gospels that he comes in the presence of a demon, that demon falls down and realizes the man is here. That should allow us, when you pray to Jesus, just remember his authority. I think one of the best things we can do, if your prayer life is a little bit flat and you have trouble finding things to pray about, just spend a few moments telling Jesus what you know about him. Okay? Some of the best praying you can do, in fact, when you read Old Testament prayers, there are very few requests. It is a litany of who he is. Creator of the universe. Lord over all powers. The one who walked on water. The one who cast out demons. The one who took a sack lunch and fed 5,000 people. I could go on and on and on. Have a little worship time where you tell Jesus about him. Remember when you were dating someone significant and you said, I love you, and they said, why? And you're like, ah, give me three reasons why you love me. And then you had to stop and think, well, I like because of this and because of this and because of this. And they're like, is that all? And because of this and because of this. You know, if you really are in that moment with Jesus, you could spend 20 minutes stopping and going, I've never thanked you for being my courage because I know you can stand up to every demon. I never thanked you for making the Grand Canyon. I never thanked you for the Rocky Mountains. I never thanked you for the fact that we had an entire January without a flick of snow. Thank you, Jesus. And then I also thank you that I, can go, I could go skiing if I wanted to. Or I could go water skiing if I want. I, all of these things. I, if you want to have a conversation with Jesus, tell him what you know about him. It, you know, we would call it flattery. The Bible calls it praise. If it's real and you're not trying to get something from him, just spend the next time you pray telling him how much you appreciate and how much you're learning about him and who he is. It will change your prayer life. Instead of just, here's what I need. Can you work that out for me? So the, the whole concept of demons, authority. Other incidents over demons as listed there. Uh, heals a deaf and blind man, which is kind of an interesting. It's from Mark chapter 3. Remember the Pharisees thought that was associative? The demoniac, a girl that was mute because of a demon in her, a woman's daughter, an epileptic boy, a bent woman, all of these things Jesus showed authority over. Number four, Jesus' miracle showed his authority over sickness. Spend a moment looking at the list. Here's the trick question. Is that all he did with the sick? Be really careful. John says at the end of the gospel, the world could not contain, excuse me, the world could not contain all the accounts of what Jesus did. They recorded moments. But don't think, and this is something I've fallen into, so I assume you're all going to make the same mistake. Don't think because it's not mentioned in Scripture that it's not probable. You can't go in and say, well, I know this happened when it's not documented by eyewitness. But John says these are just a sample of the kind of work Jesus did, the significance of it, as recorded by the witnesses. Number five, Jesus' miracles showed his authority over biological death. 
we talked, the story in here is the uh, part of the story we told you Sunday about the little girl, 12-year-old little girl whose dad ran to Jesus and said, if you'd come lay your hands on her, she'll be healed. And Jesus started to go with him. He was preempted by this woman who grabbed his coat and power left his body and he responded to her faith. And then they got there. Remember, Jesus said, she's not dead, she's what? Paul picks up on that. I believe Peter uses that imagery as well, that death is not the final story. Death is falling asleep. Um, there's, this is significant on multiple layers. Now, I think for people that would come out on a Wednesday night, I'm really, I am just singing to the choir, which is a bad idea. But I think it's helpful for us to understand there are a bunch of people out there who are betting their futures on the fact that there is nothing after death. You get one go through it. Now, about six months ago, it was really cool for cool kids to write Y-O-L-O. What did YOLO stand for? You only live once. Now, I could be the old curmudgeon, get off my yard preacher. You know, get off my lawn, go away. But YOLO is a bad concept for a Christian to even ponder. Because I don't plan on only living once. I'm going to live twice. The first one I had nothing to do with. The second one I get to choose. Now, that might be just picking on a trend from people that are just, it's a catchy phrase. But I think for us, there's, there's even Christians who believe, I'm just going to serve well and then I don't know what's going to happen. You've been told that there is a place that he's preparing for us in his presence, and I don't know what we're going to do there. People ask preachers that all the time. Well, who's going to be there? And what about pets? And what about this? And are we going to have, our kids going to know us? And if, you know, if I see my grandpa, and I fully expect to see my grandfather because of his faith in Jesus and because Jesus can be counted on, am I going to see the 92-year-old grandpa that died, or am I going to get to see the 50-year-old grandpa I never knew, or the 35-year-old grandpa who was just an absolute hellraiser and caused all kinds of problems? How old is that old man going to be when I see him? but I have no doubt I'll see him. And so it's kind of exciting to get there going, you know, where are we going on vacation? It's a surprise, but you're going to love it. And you know the person who tells you you're going to love it knows exactly what you love. There's hope in that, right? So when you talk about authority over biological death, the reason I put biological death in there is because I want us to remember and celebrate. The great eraser is death. It erases all of our sin, all of our mistakes, it enters us into a resurrected body that's eternal. Our spirit and soul have always been eternal. Our bodies have not been. And so because of that, Jesus said to that little girl, get up, and she got up, and she walked around. That's all we know. Now, there are some other stories I, I just put in there. Luke chapter 7, raising the widow's son. This is one of the most perplexing stories in all the Bible for me. Um, he walks by a funeral procession. There's a part of Jesus that's revealed in this that's fascinating. This procession's going by. Jesus notices something. Do y'all remember the story? If you don't, don't be embarrassed, but it's a, it's a good story to know. He goes by and what does he see? A mother leading the procession of her son. In our culture, that means nothing to us. But who led the procession of a funeral? The father or the husband? When Jesus saw this procession and this young man being carried and he saw the mother leading the procession. He knew exactly what was going on. This was her son. He was dead. She's all the family left. There was no one to care for her. Women couldn't go get jobs in the culture back then. They were relying upon a man taking care of her. And because she was by herself in this processional, Jesus did the math and he said, that's her last hope. And I love a Jesus who's heading that direction, who sees someone heading this direction, and he goes out of his way to care for her. 
and he reaches up and he touches the, the, the body. He touches the casket, which is a no-no. Remember, don't touch the table. Seven feet away, teeth brushed, shaved, showered. Jesus reaches up and touches the dead body because he can't be made unholy by us. He touches the dead body. All it's recorded by Luke is he sat up and began to talk to his mother about what? Come on. That is just so unfair to get to that great moment. And you don't even get to see the hug, the kiss, the celebration. And Jesus just turns around and keeps going. I, that's, that's the Jesus that people don't know about in our world today. They have principal Jesus who you have to have an appointment with. And it's only because you've been in trouble and you're trying to overcome it. I don't like that. I love the humanity and the heart of Jesus. The compassion that made him weep. Death made him cry. Death made him upset. Death made him get people of faith away from him so that by the power of faith he could raise, well, Lazarus. It's another incidence of Jesus not being cool with death. And I don't know where this came from. I probably have to see Mr. Buckland over there and have him give me a counseling session. But I, get, I guess I grew up with a, a concept of a God who's like, you did it to yourself, it ought to hurt. I was like, that's just not in the Bible. What did Jesus do when he went to the tomb? It's, of course, the shortest verse in all scripture. But it's probably the most profound and revealing, one of the most profound revealing. He went outside Lazarus' tomb. He asked all the people that were fake mourning to go away. Very significant. There were people that were paid to come and, and, and mourn with you. So if something bad happened to your family, people would come in and you would feed them and take care of them and they would sit around and help you grieve. And sometimes it was for show and sometimes it wasn't, but Jesus went in there and he dismissed all of those people out of there because he didn't, if you have to fake grieving over death, you don't understand it. That's why Paul says to Christians, we grieve, but we don't grieve like the world grieves for those who have no hope. Because this is the truth. If you go into a funeral and say, oh, they died, it's good. No, it's not good. Jesus tried to stop it regularly. He cried over it. He got furious over it. And yet, Lazarus come out. Lazarus walked out of the tomb. Three days later. Four days. I'm questioning my math. You look it up. See if I'm telling you a lie. Somewhere in John 11, it states, I think it's four days. Because I've always been perplexed. What's the uniqueness about Lazarus being in the tomb for four days and Jesus for three days? There's something there. I'm just not smart enough to figure it out. If you figure it out, write a book. I'll, I'll do the foreword. All right? Does that sound fair? Okay. Number six. Jesus' miracles showed his authority to forgive sin. Okay. You heard a sermon on it two weeks ago, if you were here. I mentioned it again Sunday in the intro to the sermon. The story of the boy being lowered by his friends to the roof. When Jesus said your sins are forgiven, what was he saying? He's saying he's God. What else? Remember Elijah and Isaac getting a fist fight? What was the moral of our little fable? The only one who can forgive someone for their actions is what? The person who was wronged by those actions. And when Jesus said your sins are forgiven... The Pharisees and the rulers in the room knew exactly what he said. 
when he said, I forgive you, it's because you, your sin was against me. And do you remember the question that they raised in that moment? Who can forgive sins but, but God? Jesus is like, nobody but God can forgive sins. Your sins are forgiven. And so remember, I picked on you the first week. Our critics say there's a lot of people that argue with Christianity and their statement is Jesus never at one time said he was God. What's our response to that again? Okay, and it's not, uh uh-uh. Okay, that's that's not a fair debate style. If people say Jesus never said he was God, what, what should be our response? He did indirectly, didn't he? And why did he do it indirectly? Pardon? Okay. Time wasn't right. But he did say he was God. Indirectly. To who? Pilate. Pilate asked him, Are you the Son of God? And what was his response? It is as you said. You see, Jesus did not come to make that proclamation. He came to show who he was and reveal who he was. And he will tell us later that the Holy Spirit will be the one that gives us the ability to, re- to recognize this. But he, he said... I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen what? The Father. I forgive you of your sins. He's given them every piece of the puzzle. And if they snapped it all together and paid attention, they would have a picture of him as God. And so people say, why didn't he just come out and say, I'm God? Because it wasn't the right time. And if that would have happened, he would have been arrested for blasphemy before the pieces were in place, before the disciples were ready, before the church was ready to go. He couldn't just force it. He had to wait on the timing of God. It was part of his submission. He had to be led by the Holy Spirit. He had to wait on the time of God. God had to wait on himself and the perfect time when it wasn't always convenient. And so even Satan has used that to say Jesus never said he was... He was God, but he did, indirectly. And when someone said, you're God, aren't you? He said, yeah, just like you just said. Jesus was very savvy, and, and that's significant. So let's talk about his sermons. And as I mentioned last week, not to keep repeating myself, but to set this all up, I believe the Sermon on the Mount was Jesus' traveling sermon. It was a message he preached often. It was a message about the new kingdom and what was it like to follow him because he came to pronounce a new kingdom. Number one, Jesus taught values. What is a value? It's a practice belief. I want you to think about that. A value is a practiced belief. You can believe that lying is wrong but are you still able to lie? What makes the difference between believing it's wrong and valuing it? The choice you make not to lie. Of course, none of us lie because we're Christians. We just exaggerate. Or we leave significant pieces of it out, right? But the truth is, every one of us struggles with telling the truth because sometimes the truth is not to our advantage. It's to our disadvantage. But we still know it's true. A value is this lived out. So Jesus taught values. He didn't teach uh, propositions about this is the way it ought to be. He said, blessed are those 
who haven't caught the breaks. Blessed are those in my kingdom who don't have it all figured out, who don't have power and authority. Blessed are those who are meek and humble and have been persecuted for their values and beliefs. Blessed are the, we would think, you say, blessed are those who got the hammer. Blessed are those who have so many, so much money and possessions that they can do whatever they want whenever they want. But he didn't say that. He said, no, in my kingdom, blessed are the people who can't help themselves. Those are the ones that God's going to invest in because they're going to humble themselves before him. Blessed are those who turn the other cheek. Bless, you guys are onto this now, right? Values are, if you believe God's in control, you don't have to fight for control. You don't have to claim control. You don't have to take people out to get what you want. It's living it out. So God values, as listed there, are the poor in spirit, mourn, meek, hunger for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart. I, I want to be crystal clear on this. I probably haven't taught on this to the big church in probably three or four years now. These are not things you go out and do. The Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, he's not saying go out and be humble and go out and get persecuted. And he's not, it's not what it means. The Jesus style of teaching would have been a, a Hebrew form of presenting the shockingness or the shocking uh, perspective of what it is to be taken in by God. Jesus said a doctor doesn't come for the healthy, he comes for the what? Sick. The Beatitudes was a display of people that the world does pay no attention to, but Jesus said, I've come for them. Blessed are the ones in my kingdom who humble themselves and who admit they're weak and admit they're broken and admit they don't have it all figured out. And I, I have friends and it, it still bothers me today and I've done this. So this is a confession of all of us who try to position ourselves. I've had people... Uh, I had a buddy of mine, maybe four, five, six years ago, who decided on social media he was going to announce that the starting quarterback at the university in the town that he ministered in had just been baptized in their church and was now leading a small group. And he put that out for social media. And we're good friends. And we bust each other's chops all the time. So he could tell more stories about when he's had to calm me down than me calming him down. But I called him that after well, that happened on a Sunday night. Someone sent me a copy of it and said, isn't this awesome? And I was like, yeah. And then I called him up the next day and I said, huh, I've never seen you post one time that, that the alcoholic who beats his wife just came to Jesus and was saved. And he hung up on me. And he called me the next morning and goes, you're just a jerk. I said, no, I love you. But I don't think Jesus wants us to celebrate when the celebrities, when only the celebrities come to Christ. You know, when the president of the university or the, the big leading book writer starts attending our church, God's not interested in our platforms. What he wants to know is when that guy who was in addiction, who was freed from that addiction by the power of Christ's spirit, he comes and becomes a believer and his testimony goes out. Jesus said, I came for the sick, not for the popular and the status driven and the ones who make us all look good and feel good. That's what God values. That's why he said, go into the alleys and the byways and invite them all in. He didn't say, go to the award ceremonies. Go to the red carpet. Now, are the people on the red carpet as valuable as, yeah, absolutely. But we seem to celebrate what makes us look good in the eyes of men instead of listening to the values of Christ in the church. What, are pe what do people value? Self-confidence, competence, self-reliance, hedonistic, proud. We can go on and on and on. I think we need every now and then to confess as a part of our confession that it does make us feel good when someone we admire in the community becomes a part of our fellowship. I, I think I sometimes have to confess that, yeah, it's, it's really good when you 
work with a family of, you coach these little kids in baseball for two or three years and their folks start coming to church. It makes you feel good, but I, I didn't die for them. I, didn't, I can't save them and I can't, I can't feed their hearts. That's all God's work. We just want to be useful, right? We just want to be helpful in this adventure. Number two, Jesus explained the true intent of Old Testament law. I put a little chart down here so I wouldn't have to talk that much more. What did Jesus teach about true righteousness? There are two things to remember from the Sermon on the Mount when it comes to the law. So here's, here's a, a question. You guys figure out an answer for me. Did Jesus say we're moving beyond the law now? Yes and no. That was so totally a trick question. Did he say we're moving beyond the law now? Yes, he did. He didn't say we're negating the law. He said we're extending it more fully. He said, I'm not abolishing the law at all. I'm going to teach you how to live it out. Remember the table versus the seven foot and all the unnecessary stuff? He was trying to clear away all that. He said, no, listen, here's the law. Look at the example. Behavior. Matthew 5. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Give legal divorce. Keep your oath. Those are behaviors, right? Those are values. And what is the righteousness? He said, do not murder or hate your enemies. He said, no, no, don't even be angry. Now, is that an impossibility? Is that an idealistic approach? After so many years on this earth, I wish I could choose not to be angry. But what I can choose is this. Once I'm angry, what do I do? Right? I I get embarrassed by the things that make me angry sometimes. I, I just do. I wish I didn't have that in me. I was reading something that someone wrote this week and it startled me. It said that you really know what you value by how you drive your vehicle in heavy traffic. Oh, I'm a sinner. My goodness, do I need to repent. Because everybody's an idiot and everyone's in my way and anybody who pulls out in front of me and turns two parking spots later, it's like, I cannot believe you're human. All because it's inconveniencing me and I realize I have a core struggle with people being in my world. And Jesus says, that's not good, Mark. I I came into your world and put up with all of this to love you and serve you. I'm asking you to do the same thing. I have to overcome me in this. This is where our values are not based on laws. They're based on believing those laws have merit. Those laws have weight. And those laws are worship. That's why Jesus said, I didn't come to throw the law away. There's nothing wrong with the law. Now, the law convicts us of our sins so that we can learn to live on the side of real life, not on the side of death, right? That's what Paul says. The law's value was showing us what death was like, but I've come to show you in grace what life is like. So when he says, do not commit adultery, he says, no, no, no. Don't even look at another person as something for you to use. Because God didn't create other human beings to make us feel good. That would be a unique value, right? A distinct value when Rome's in charge. Because if you had power in Rome, you had anybody you wanted sexually. And it just became so much so that everything was sexually oriented, all based on your power. When he said, keep an oath, Jesus came back. Remember what Jesus said to those when it came to keeping oaths? You don't need them. If you give your word, keep your word. But how about you live in such a way that you don't even have to give your word? That people know when you say you'll do something, you'll absolutely do it. And it become important. There's times, I, I don't know that I ever watched this show, but I passed through the room enough when my mom was watching it to have picked up on every moral lesson from Little House in the Prairie. 
Now, I'm honest with you folks. If I would have watched it, I would have told you. But I don't think I've ever watched an episode. But I would walk through the room. My, mo- my mother loved that show. And it was always on. And I just remember distinct moments from shows like The Waltons and Little House in the Prairie that when someone told you they would do something, I remember a Leave it to Beaver episode where Beaver told somebody he would do something and Ward made him go and do it. And we look at that and say, those are old-time values. I'm not sure that the people in the 50s, 60s, and 70s when those shows were made actually did that. But what they were hearkening to was there was a day of chivalry where someone gave their word it meant something. They valued the integrity of what they represented themselves to be, right? Jesus has been talking about this long before there was a, you know, Michael Landon or a Leave it to Beaver. So when we look at this, what did Jesus teach us about righteousness? The law shows us what is good and what the Lord requires. Okay? God has, God has made it clear, and the law is not a horrible thing. So when the Pharisees turned it into a burden, Jesus wanted to turn it into a challenge. There's a big difference. Number three, Jesus emphasized the personal nature of a relationship with God. He emphasized the personal nature of a relationship with God. Now, you're going to think I'm setting you up, but I want to be honest with you. I want you to look at the Matthew 6, 2 through 4 that I've written there, or I've put in there. I didn't write it, but... What's it about? Someone said money? Let's broaden that a little bit. Okay. Yeah, it's about using your life as a sacrifice. Stewardship. It's a good technical word for it. Using what God's given you well. So when you give to the needy, notice the assumption. Don't do it so that people notice it. They've received the reward in full. But when you give to the needy, notice the assumption. He would go on and say, and when you pray, notice the assumption. And when you fast, Notice the assumption that you will do those things just like your father did. What I find fun is to ask kids, uh, so why do you like fishing? Well, my dad always took me when I was a kid. Or I talked to like the big cupcake craze that swept America in the past three or four years. I say, why do you like to bake? Well, I always remember my grandmother took me in the kitchen. She taught me how to bake. What are you noticing about the apprenticeship nature of life? If you watch the way Jesus lived and you admire the way he lived, wouldn't you begin to replicate some of the ways he lived? So let me ask you, was Jesus generous? Now some of you are going, ah. Now if you don't know, don't answer, it's okay. It's not like a lightning bolt's going to strike you because <laughs> then he wouldn't be generous. Do you see evidence of eyewitness accounts that Jesus was a generous man? Like when a w- widow walks by with her son in the casket and Jesus says, I'm going to bring him back for you. I'm going to give you him. Was Jesus sacrificial? Duh. Don't have a cross if that's not true. So when you go down this, did Jesus spend time with God in prayer, not as a duty, but as an opportunity? Did Jesus fast? Yeah. So when you look at this lifestyle, you think this is what people that draw close to God do. This is what we do. I remember when I went out for baseball as a freshman, they gave a senior at our high school and... His, his name was Kevin Joyce, and he was a catcher, and I was a catcher on the freshman team, and Kevin was a, was a senior catcher, and they 
match me up with Kevin and I practice with Kevin. And I don't know that Kevin ever told me to do X, Y, or Z. But I remember our freshman coach saying, watch how they practice, watch how they drill, watch how they stretch. And so I knew that if I was going to be a catcher in our high school program for Coach Reinbold, that Kevin Joyce would be the one who would teach me how to be a catcher for him. I remember coming up for a game. They just, I was so excited. I was so naive. Varsity coach said, I, I want you to come to the game Tuesday. So stupid me put my uniform in the trunk. I was all ready in case he needed me. Basically, he wanted me out on the field shagging uh, without, without a uniform on. He put me out in the outfield to shag fly balls during batting practice. And then he called me in to sit in the dugout. And he said, I want you to watch how we run infield. And it was really complicated to anything I'd ever done before. I mean, coach is hitting one ball here and a ball's coming in. He's hitting another ball to that side. The first baseman's got to catch the ball from the third baseman, flip it to the pitcher, catch it from the second baseman. There were balls flying all over the infield. Coach Reinbold had a system. He wanted me to watch the catcher because if he called me in to catch, he didn't want to explain it to me. He wasn't a good teacher. He wasn't a nice man. But he won a lot of games because he had a system. Does this make sense? So I knew if I was ever going to catch for Coach Reinbold, that when he called me out there to warm-ups, I couldn't ask, what are we doing? I needed to know the system. I needed to follow it. And the way I learned that was watching Kevin Joyce. This is exactly how Jesus came to model his life for us. I want you to, to do the things I'm doing because it will pay off and you'll be a part of what God's going to build in this kingdom. That's why Jesus said, when you fast, when you pray, when you give. Don't do it so it's about you. Do it so it's about them. Exactly the way Jesus did it. Remember, he performed no miracles that were based on what? His own benefit. So this is this, is this revolutionary, or we like to call it around here, the upside-down lifestyle. Jesus flipped it all upside down, said nobody knew which way was up. And he said, now, here's what's going to happen. You're going to turn the other cheek. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. And the world's not going to understand it, but you're going to make your point in their lack of understanding, not in the lectures so forth. Number four, Jesus taught us how to approach God in prayer. I got a couple minutes here, so I want to I want to do this. Uh, you see the Lord's Prayer written out there. I read a book by Tim Keller uh, sometime between Thanksgiving and Christmas on prayer. Dr. Keller, you probably hear me quote him quite often in uh, sermons. He's not the only guy I read, but man, he's good. Just a bright thinker. I highly respect his opinions and what he writes. And so he wrote a book on prayer, and uh, he came up, or it's not his idea, but this is the way he practiced prayer. I've been doing it now probably since the 1st of December all the way for two, two months. I've been doing this. I love it. There are some days that I wake up and uh, each day I pray for a certain piece of it. I might uh, pray for people on our staff uh, who I work with and pray for their ministries. And other times I might pray for their, our elders. And, and you know, every day I try to pray for marriages and fight for the marriages in our community and blah, blah, blah. The reason I tell you that is there are some days I wake up and I'm just tired and I don't feel like praying and it's just easier to go about my work. And I just realize, no, if Jesus made time for God... Even when I don't, some of the best times for me is when I fight through that. Make sense? But Dr. Keller in his book talked about praying the Lord's Prayer. So I want to give you something practical tonight. And some of you will do it and some of you won't. That's okay. I, I, won't, I won't judge either side of it. But I want to encourage you to try it. Especially if you struggle with prayer. Dr. Keller said the best way to pray, and when Jesus gave us the model prayer, was it teaches us what prayer is about. And you'll notice there are very few requests. 
but they're statements. So for instance, our Father who art in heaven, pause. That's what I told you to do a little bit earlier. That's when you give Jesus some kisses. Who is your Father in heaven? Tell him what you know about him. Especially when this is so beautiful to do after you've read a passage of scripture. So like right now I'm reading through, well, I just finished Exodus. And I'm heading right into Deuteronomy. I'm excited about that. Okay? <laughs> Not really, that was a lie. But I'm re- reading through Exodus, stories and people. So I read about Moses and what God did with Moses. And I read about what God did with Joseph in Genesis. And I read all those passages. And I get to that moment. And then I go to my prayer time. And I start with my father who is in heaven. And that's easy. You're the God who told Moses there was water in a rock. You're the God who created the mountain and brought the law down to protect his people. It's easy, see? So look how you break this out. Our Father who art in heaven. Holy is your name. Is it? And what does that mean to you? What, is the, what does God's holiness mean to you every day? Said, your kingdom come, your will be done. I can't pray that if I'm not involved in it. So that always inspires me in that moment to go, God, you know, give me an opportunity today to establish another foothold in your kingdom. Show me what you want me to do. Make this day useful. Okay? Uh, Give us today our daily bread. That, that spikes me to say, God bless every person who this last Sunday contributed to kingdom work so we can bless someone's life. Thank you that I've always had a home my entire life. That I've had too much food. That I've had people in my life that loved me and encouraged me when I wanted to quit. That's daily bread, right? You guys get how to do this. If you take the Lord's Prayer and you combine it with your Bible study, you'll find yourself praying for 20 minutes and shock yourself because you now have a purpose. And when you're done, you feel so good about God and you feel so connected to who he is because you've reminded yourself not what he can do for you, but what he's already done. And so some days I have no request Thursdays. Or I just wake up and say, if you didn't, it's one of the expressions that I like to think of is if God never did another thing for me he's done enough so on Thursdays I realize he's going to operate the universe and I'm just going to thank him for doing that and I don't have to remind him of every hospital call or every he's got it I just like sitting sometime in his presence knowing it's okay like when my father we, we go back to South Bend it cracks me up I tease my dad all the time I said dad I make more money than you make he goes yeah I know because he's always reaching for the check And it dawned on me one day, my father always reaches for the check. And never once when he's grabbed the check did I wonder if he was capable of paying it off. It just didn't dawn on me. If dad reached for the check, he was able to to buy dinner. And he still gets a kick out of feeding his huge family. And he's on a retirement income. He'll reach over and he'll grab that check. And I never once go, dad, do you have enough money in the bank? Are you sure? Can you meet this obligation? This isn't bearing you. How come when God says, I've got it, I worry? God's reaching for the check. I'm going, oh, you can't. You can't handle it, God. <laughs> so if I spend no request Thursday, it, is God going to be up there going, well, because Mark didn't ask for it, it's not going to happen. No, he's actually saying to me, the hardest thing for Mark to do is not be in charge. So he's like, you just sit back. I got it. I'll reach for the check. I'm like, yeah, thank you. Should have ordered dessert. <laughs> no, no, never mind. That's what I do to my dad. You're buying, all right. Dessert for the whole table. <laughs> it's on us. All right, number five. Jesus taught personal priorities. Matthew 6, 19. Don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where someone else is going to use them or they can be stolen. 
And then he said, Matthew 6, 24, you cannot serve both God and treasures. Hopefully right now what you're realizing is this. See, this is not talking about money. Makes people mad. Every time I go to church, all they do is want my money. No, no, I want more than that. I want all of you. Why? Because he asked me to ask for all of you. He didn't ask, he didn't ask me to ask you for 10%. 10% is ridiculously the minimum amount of any request. If you actually go to the Old Testament and you total up the amount of tithes that's expected, it comes to 27%. So, that's just the truth. But he's not looking for money here, is he? He's saying, no, no, your, your money follows your heart. Your words follow your heart. Your hands and feet follow your heart. Your prayers follow your heart. Your giving to the... You guys get it. Smart crowd. Number six. Jesus taught trust in God as a loving father. This is so beautiful. I'm going to preach to the Sermon on the Mount again. Matthew chapter 6, he says, Do the flowers ever have to worry about having enough? Do the birds ever have to fly around wondering if there's going to be enough worms and enough bugs and enough water? Absolutely not. We have a... uh, I don't know how to describe it. At our house, there's a pool in the backyard. I obviously didn't build it, but the people we bought it from had a beautiful pool in it. And it's got one of these mesh things you put over it every winter. And the other day, Braden's like, Dad, look in the backyard. And I was kind of in a hurry and ornery in the morning, and I wanted to get going, and he delayed putting his shoes on, so he and I weren't getting along, let's say. And he goes, Dad, look at the pool. I said, Braden, get your shoes on. I'm not going to be late for work, and you're not going to be late for school. And he goes, Look! Oh, my gosh. And I looked out there, and there were two deer walking across our pool, across that standard and I tapped on the window and both of them turned around and looked up so all of you guys that go hunt and stink up and and wear the camel just come to my back deck you can have deer every day for free (laughs) and there they they were on the pool and I thought isn't that funny if I would click the door handle right now those deer would sprint into the woods and hide but they have no problem standing on this green mesh that they don't even know what it's made of and they eat around the bushes in our yard and they eat the sweet grass toward the back and they just linger all day and there's not a bit of anxiety in any one of those creatures. We have two raccoons that come into our yard every night. I have shot those things with uh, those airsoft guns over and over and over because they get in our outside trash can and they have buffet. They drive me crazy. I pop those things, they wave at me, see you tomorrow. It's like, oh my gosh. They have no worry. They're gonna find things. And God says to this, if the birds and the flowers have no concern about me providing for them, it's insulting to me, my paraphrase. It is insulting to me that you think I don't love you or I won't provide for you. It's powerful. It's like a father. Uh, Alex called, this hurt Heather's feelings. He's in college now, he's a junior. He called the other day and said to his mom, can I come home for dinner? My response is, yeah, sure. She was mad. Ladies, why was she mad? He asked. She's like, no, you can always come home for dinner. I'm like, no, no, don't tell him that. He will. But as a loving parent, what's her response? This is your home. And I said, hey, you don't understand. He's starting that separation process where he seldom eats with us, but I just thought it was respectful anyway. She, she was mad at both of us. Number seven, Jesus caught, uh, taught coming to God with our needs. That loving father wants to know. And the last point I want to make tonight, kind of wrap this all up, is Jesus taught life building. And when I wrote that, I might have rolled my eyes at myself. But this is, 
The reason I want the term life building there is for this simple principle. If you are trying to add an addition onto your life where Jesus fits, we have misunderstood. Jesus made it explicit. You have to die to enter his kingdom. Not physically, you have to die to self. And for many of us, we're trying to fit Jesus into a world already packed with kingdom building over here. And he said, no, I want you to kingdom build over here. And our spot is, okay, well, what I'll do is I'm going to kingdom build each day. I'm going to do my job. I'm going to love my family. I'm going to do my hobbies. I'm going to meet my needs. And then in my spare time, like maybe Saturday and Sunday, I'm going to kingdom build over here on your house. And Jesus is like, no, no, there's no your house, Mark. I bought you with my blood. You and I are going to live in this house. You don't need your own house. You don't need your own toys. You don't need all that. Live in my house. Live with me forever. And we keep going, no, 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 no. Great, great, I, I love it. And one day, as soon as I finish my house, I'm going to move into your house. Isn't that ridiculous? To spend our entire lives building something that we are never going to live in. So Jesus said, you've got to die so that all of that can come over here and live in something that is going to be so much better. That's why I want to call it life building. Because he said, come and die. You got to follow me, you got to come and die. This is what the Gospels were wrapping up for us. Questions or comments real quick? And I'll let you go get your kids or skate home or whatever it awaits us. Uh, yeah, Dan. Okay. They revealed him as God. If you go right under that miracle section, under the miracles of Christ, that should be the last line in that last paragraph. Is it there? The paragraph that begins with even more significantly, if you go to that last line, I think I highlighted it there. All right, you guys be safe going home, and hopefully we'll see you all Sunday. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.